Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. I mentioned earlier today, and I've mentioned it in the past, that uh, we're doing the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And the star over here, you can see it's not lit up. Uh, that will be lit up as we begin to get some money in on that on that Christmas offering. And as I said before, that is uh, the offering that you give on that. None of it stays here specifically in this church. Instead, it goes to help out uh, the missionaries that are doing overseas missions through the Southern Baptist Convention. And our, our church goal is $500. And that's very, very doable for a church this size. And, you know, it's, it's a real good, uh, real good cause, of course, getting the gospel out to people that need to, need to hear it. And I think it's appropriate that we do it in December because we focus on Christ coming to Bethlehem. We focus on His arrival. And, and really, the reason that He came was in order to lay down His life as a sacrifice for the whole world. And, and this, this should come as no shock to you, but God wants a, a people that will worship Him. They're made up of all tribes, tongues, and nations. He desires all nations to be His worshipers. Now that's the theme that runs throughout the Bible, and, and it's true in our text today. And what I want you to see out of our, uh, out of our text, Matthew chapter 2, is I want you to see that God desires all nations, and not just the Jews, to come to Him. And God will do what is necessary for us to, uh, to respond in a positive way. It's up to us to do that response, but He will do what is necessary to bring us to that point. So if you, if you found Matthew chapter 2, I'd like you to stand, if you would, as, as we uh, read the first few verses, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem, O Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall, shall come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel? Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went, out, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell on the ground and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Thank you. Be seated. One of the things that, that people tend to lose sight of whenever they read the Bible, and this is true both uh, for Christians and non-Christians, is people, people tend to think that God only has a, a small group of people that He wants to be His followers. Many, many people think that God's chosen people are the Jews, and that's all that He's interested in. But God is and always has been interested not only in the Jew, but also in the Gentile. Not, not, not just the Jew, but also the non-Jew. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, we see it very clearly and early in the Bible. You remember Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. 
And what he said, he said, look up and, and, and see the stars of the sky. He said, your descendants are going to be like that. And that's the part we always think of. But he goes on to say, um, he said, in your seed, all, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, he didn't say just all the families that are going to be in your family line. All the families of the earth, all, all people, all nations in the seed. Paul, Paul points out in the book of uh, Galatians, that seed is Jesus. And we experience the blessing of salvation through faith in Him. So we see it taught in, 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 in principle, but also we see it fleshed out. You remember in, in the book of Ruth and, and later on in the book of Judges with, with Rahab? Here are these women who are Gentiles. They were far away from God. They're not part of God's covenant people. But they end up leaving their idolatrous families, their, their idolatrous people, and they, they, they make God their God. And what happened? God accepted them. He brought them in as part of His people. And not only that, but actually Ruth and Rahab, these people who are far away from God, if you'll read Matthew chapter 1, we say, oh, Matthew chapter 1 is just a genealogy. That's real boring stuff. It may be kind of boring, but if you read through it, those two women are part of Jesus' family tree. They not only became part of the people of God, they became part of Christ's tree, family tree on earth. We, we see it in, in the book of Luke. You remember the angel comes and he makes an announcement to the shepherds. He says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for who? All people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. See, God's desire for the nations is for all to come and worship Christ. God desires all people to come and worship Him. And it's pre prefigured, it's, it's typified in the people that come to worship Christ at His birth. We see it in the shepherds in Luke's Gospel, but we see it here with the Magi. Now, who are these Magi? Your Bible may call them wise men. We're just saying three kings. That's, that's more of a traditional thing. Uh, they, they weren't kings. They were wise men, we might call them. They, they were Magi. We don't know exactly where they came from. Uh, some people say Arabia. Some people say Parthia, kind of around uh, where the old Babylonian Empire was. Some people say Persia. It's not real important where they came from. Because if it was, the Bible would have told us. Some people say, you remember after Noah got off the boat, he had three sons, Mary, that named for Shem, Ham, Japheth. Some people say that these, these uh, magi were represented, they were descendants from all three of those groups representing all the nations. The point is, we don't know exactly where they came from. But here's what we do know. History records that in the ancient Near East, where these guys were, that there in almost every empire there was a class or a group of people who were considered wise men. They were educated. They were, they were very educated in, in the, the sciences of the day, in astrology, astronomy, dream interpretation, divination, all sorts of stuff like that. You remember in the book of Daniel? Uh, they kept calling for the wise men to come and interpret the dreams. Daniel was in charge of them. That's this group of people. They were kind of they, they were the, the counselors to the king. And while we may not know where they came from with certainty, we do know that they would have most likely most certainly have been Gentiles. And, and these Gentiles responded in a positive way to God's activity and drawing. They saw this heavenly phenomenon and they came to worship Christ. Say, so what's the point for me today? Like these, like these wise men, like these magi, we too need to respond to the activity and the drawing of the Lord in our lives. Because God is drawing people even today. Now these men, they could have they could have shrugged off what they saw. They could have reasoned it away. They could have 
Uh, they, they could have come up with all kinds of excuses not to have made this trek. It's going to cost too much money. It's going to cost too much time. I, I'm, I, I'm too sophisticated to go see something like that. But they didn't do any of that. And I wonder how many times we've sat in, in a church and we've listened to a sermon. We've heard the Bible taught in Sunday school. We've heard a message on TV or the radio. We, we have all these things that God is speaking to us in and He's drawing us, He's convicting our hearts and we don't respond the way God wants us to. We'll reason it away. Well, you know, that's the Bible. Not, yeah, I'm not living the way it says to live, but that was, that was for then. That's not for today. Or maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we're, we're being convicted by the Holy Spirit and we know we need to change. We know we need to do something different. And so we bring in all these activities, all these extra things from the outside to try and drown out His conviction. Sometimes we, we do this. We say, I'll wait till next time. You're done that. I'll just, I'll just put that off. Lord, I know You're speaking to me and I'll do it one of these days, but not today. Whenever I, whenever I was in school, I had a teacher, Mr. Smith. He was my fifth grade teacher. And we'd ask him to do something. And he'd always say, tomorrow. So the next day we'd come... And we'd say, Mr. Smith, can we do this? He'd say, no, we can't do that. We said, but you said yesterday, you said we could do it tomorrow. He said, it's not tomorrow, it's today. He did that the whole time I was in fifth grade. Drove us nuts. Isn't that what we do to God sometimes? God, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. It's not tomorrow, God. I'll put off a little bit longer because it's today. We need to respond to God's activity and to His drawing in our lives. And God's going to do what's necessary for us to respond to Him. Now I want you to see the extent that He went to uh, to get these wise men, these magi, to come worship Christ. Now, some people will say, well, God's not done enough for me to respond. I need just a little more proof. I need Him to do something miraculous in my life for me to respond. But I can tell you with biblical authority, God has done and will do everything necessary for us to respond to Christ. I said with biblical authority. Acts chapter 17, verses 24-27. You remember in Acts 17, uh, uh, Paul was in a city. And there were all these idols. You remember, he, he was walking around the city, and he saw all these idols, and he was grieved in his spirit because there was an idol set up. One of them was to an unknown God. You remember that? And, and he went, and he began to talk to these people, and, and he began to have a public forum, basically. And he said, I, I noticed that y'all... And this is Ozarkian. I notice you all are, are very religious. And that you've got this idol set up to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you this, this unknown God because I know Him. As then he begins to talk about Him. And in chapter 17, here's what he says. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now I want to pause right here for just a second. What Paul is saying is that from Adam, God has made all these people groups. And he's determined where they're going to live and for how long. Listen to this. That, here's the reason. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though He is not far from each one of us. What I'm saying is God, God has put us where He's put us, when He's put us there, so that we will find Him, so that we will seek after Him. God has given each person light 
He's given everybody the light of creation, so nobody's without excuse. But he goes he goes beyond that, and he will do what is necessary for each person in order to to respond to him. Now, does everybody respond to him in an appropriate way, in a positive way? No, but that's on them, because God has done everything that's necessary for them to respond in faith. And if they don't do it, it's because of their heart. It's because of a wicked, rebellious heart. And notice the extent that he went to get these men to Christ. He he, he says that uh, there's this supernatural intervention. He intervenes in the normal course of nature. Because these men, they would have been watching the stars. And I never really understood this until I went to Mexico. Because when I was in Mexico, uh, we went to the Riviera Maya. It was a wonderful trip. We went to Chichen Itza. And it's a great big, if you've seen the great big stone pyramids with all the steps and stuff, like the Aztecs, the Mayans built, we went to see went to see that. And all their stuff is, is arranged with the stars and, and stuff like that. And for a long time, I was always like, man, why did they watch the stars so much? But out there in the open, it's pitch black. All you, and, and you don't have TV back then, think. You don't have Facebook to get on. And, and you don't have Twitter and, and all these things to, to, to distract you and, and to keep you indoors. And you go outside, you look up, and all you have to look at is the stars. Of course they're watching the stars. And back then, uh, they thought that if there was some astrological event... It meant something big was happening on Earth. Because you think about the, the planets, the stars, all that stuff is, is pretty stationary. You know you can predict it. And if something out of the ordinary happens, the ancients thought God was intervening in some way. And so these men were watching the stars, and they saw this cosmic event. And we don't know what this cosmic event was. Again, wouldn't it be nice if God answered all of our questions? We'd say, well, what exactly was that? I want to know. But he doesn't do it because it's not really the important thing. Now again, it's it's the Bible's probably using phenomenological language. That's a great big word, great big phrase that really means the biblical author wrote it down like it looked. Okay? Now now we do this today, and I, I'm I'm saying this because whenever you talk to people that are skeptics of the Bible, they'll look at those, this, they'll say, Stars don't move. The Bible's false. So I'm, I'm going to... This is phenomenological language. We use it today. Because you go outside. I remember being a kid out in the out in the fields. Dad would be harvesting some, some corn or something. You look up in the sky. You just sit there. You say, oh, there's a shooting star. No, it's not. It's a piece of space junk. It's, it's a meteor, a meteor, a meteorite. I can't keep those straight. It, it's something, but it's not a shooting star. Not scientifically accurate, but hey... That's what I, that's, it looks like a star that's flying through the sky, right? We use it today. You go deer hunting, what do you do? You say, well, you can't shoot a deer uh, more than 30 minutes before sunrise or more than 30 minutes after sunset. Does the sunrise or set? No, we move in relation to it. We use phenomenological language the same way the biblical authors did. Did a star move? Probably not because stars don't move. So what was it? I don't know. Bible scholars, people, students of the Bible have, have looked at this for a long time and they come up with a meteor, a comet, an alignment of certain planets. Uh, some people remember in, in the book of Luke, the angel comes to the, to, to the shepherds and the Bible says that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Some people say it was so bright over in Judea that these men in the east, or these men in the west, they saw the star in the east, these men in the west, um, I think I may mess that up. Anyway, these men off yonder saw this bright light. 
And maybe some people say it's because of the glory of the Lord. I can't help but think of the book of Exodus when when God was leading His people out of Egypt. There's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, moving them, leading them the way God wanted them to go. The point is, God did what was necessary for them to come to Christ. What has He done in, in your life and mine for you to respond to Christ? Say, well, He didn't make a star appear in the heavens. Maybe not, but... You ever prayed? Say, God, if you're real, show me some way. God, I'm going through a tough time. If, if you really are caring about me, show me in some way. You ever prayed and God answered that? You ever felt conviction of sin in your heart? I mean, all these, all these things, God is, is, is moving us to respond to Him. He'll do all that's necessary for you to believe. Now, He's not interested in being a dog and pony show. You remember, there were some people in Christ's day who had seen miracles and they said, show us one more. If you'll show us one more, then we can believe. Did Christ do it? No. Why? Because He had done everything that was necessary for them to believe. Their issue was not an absence of proof, but a hardness of heart. God has already sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins and mine. What else does He need to do to show you that He loves you? Nothing. God will do what is necessary, and He has done what is necessary for us to respond in Him. The question is, how are you going to respond? Now, in this text, there are three responses to Christ. Those three typify responses today. The first response is of the wise men, the Magi, and that's adoration. Adoration. These men came to worship the newborn king. We sang about it just a minute ago. They brought their treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As that applies to us today, we well, we don't even know what frankincense and myrrh are for the most part. Unless you watch Duck Dynasty, then you know that frankincense, franken is just a... a Prefix anyway. If you if you watch Doug Dice, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I'll just move on. But adoration. Now we 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 couldn't do frankincense and myrrh, and probably none of us has gold in our pockets, right? Because we're broke. But God's not looking for people who are wealthy to come worship Him only. He's looking for broke people to come too. Jesus said God's looking for people to worship Him in spirit and truth. And Jesus said, Whosoever will may come. All ye who are heavy, uh, weary and heavy laden, come unto me. Adoring Christ means that we worship Him. We, we, we show Him that He's valuable. Now, did, did He need gold, frankincense, and myrrh? No. He's God. He doesn't need anything. But when we offer Him these things, we're showing Him all this stuff that maybe I would have gotten pleasure out of, I'm giving to you, even though you don't need them, I'm giving them to you to show you that I see you as more valuable than them and my pleasure is found in you. Do you adore Christ? Is he, the, is he number one in your life? Do you organize your life around Him? We talked on Wednesday about priorities. Is He your priority? Because that's what the Magi did. They adored Christ. The other two responses, that one's really good. The other two responses are pretty bad, pretty lousy. We see, we see the response of Herod. And what was his response? Well, it, it was one of hostility or anger. He heard about the Christ. He heard about the newborn king. And what did, they say? what did he say? 
He said, when do you see that star? They told him. He said, why don't you go find out where he's where he is so I can go and worship him. Now Herod was a nut job. He had most of his own family killed, including his one of his wives, his mother-in-law, and a couple of his sons because he was jealous for his throne. He, he saw anybody that was a threat, he would just have them put to death. And so when Christ was born, here's this king, this newborn king, a threat to the throne in his mind, he's going to have him put to death. And after he finds out later that uh, the wise men have, have tricked him, they didn't go back and tell him what he wanted to know, he has all, the, all those babies, all those kids, two and under, put to death in Bethlehem. Hostility. Now if you don't go talk about Jesus to somebody at work, that person you're talking to probably is not going to pull a gun on your kid. It's probably not going to happen. But if you've talked to somebody about Christ, you've talked to him about God, if you've seen it, if you've witnessed it online, conversation gets to go on and talk about the Lord, you'll notice there's a lot of hostility in this world in there. A lot of people do not like God. People will get will get uh, argumentative. They'll get hateful. They're hostile. They're angry at God. Now, does that describe any of you? Are you hostile towards God? Do you, are you angry with Him? Does, does His claim to be the one and only Savior of mankind, does that rub you the wrong way? Because that's the claim that He makes. And the last response it's one of complete indifference, or you might say apathy. And I never, I, I noticed it, but it hadn't really been driven home to me until I studied this week. The chief priests and the scribes are the ones who, who exhibit this. Apathy and indifference. Because what did Herod do? Well, um, if you look at verse 4, Herod gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, the chief priests and the scribes, these are the guys who know. It's like the high priest and all of his family, the ones who serve as high priests, and and probably the uh, the heads of the, the 24 courses of priests, and the, chief, and the scribes, they were the guys who would copy the Bible. They're the ones who would uh, read the Bible. They became experts in what it said. So he said, all you guys who know what you're talking about, you come in here, tell me where the Messiah is to be born. Verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. Now I want you to notice what's absent there. It does not say they went and they had a conversation. It doesn't say they conferred about it. It doesn't say that they got together and read through it all again and said, Well, we think it might be here, but we're not sure. Without missing a beat, he said, Where is he going to be born? They said, Bethlehem of Judea. They knew. They already knew where the Christ was to be born. They knew the prophecy out of Micah. So, here they, they know that something big has happened. The king of the Jews has been born. They know where he was born. What did they do? Nothing. You ever notice that? You ever think about that? They knew he had been born. They knew where he had been born. They knew people were going to see him. What do we say? Hey, man, can I get a ride? You ever done that? Mind if I ride on your, your, your camel? Or I'll just walk by, just let me go. I want to see Christ. I want to see the Messiah. They didn't do any of that. They said, here's where he is. See ya. They didn't care. 
apathy, indifference. In fact, verse 3 talks about all Jerusalem was disturbed because of what was being said. All the people knew what was going on. The people in Jerusalem didn't go see him either. These are the same. This is basically the Sanhedrin that Herod had assembled, and these are basically the, the same men who had opposed him all throughout his ministry, and they were the ones who ultimately got him crucified. Listen, no response to Christ is responding against him. Not responding to Christ is responding against him. What did Jesus said, he said, "He who is not for me is against me." I hear people talk about. We had a revival. There were 100 people there and 20 decisions. Wrong. There were 100 decisions. 80 decided one thing, 20 decided something else. If you don't decide for Jesus in some way, you're deciding against Him. If you don't accept Him, you reject Him. Now I wonder, again, if that describes any of us. Are we indifferent about the things of God? When God makes a claim on our life, when Jesus says, this is me, this is what I offer you, this is salvation, do we say, that's nice? Or do we respond? When God says, this is my requirement for you as a Christian to live a holy life, and this is where you're falling short, do we say, you're right. Oh well. And that sounds flippant, but isn't that what we do? We, we can come up with all kinds of reasons, but we're indifferent. We have all the proof and evidence we need, but we still refuse to bow the knee to Him. God has done everything that's needed for us to respond. If you've never accepted Him as Lord and Savior of your life, if you've never come to a point when you have actually repented of your sins and accepted Christ, you're not saved. You're lost. And today is the day to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. But it isn't just for unbelievers, it's for us as believers as well. Because the Gospel of Matthew, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, the Gospel of Matthew starts the same way it ends. How's Matthew start? Emmanuel, God with us, the nations, the Gentiles, coming to the King. We just looked at it. How's it end? Matthew 28 ends with a great commission. Instead of the nation's coming to, to Christ. What does he say? He says, you and you and you and me, all of us, he says, go into all the world to the nations, all nations, and preach and teach and disciple them, make disciples. And how, how are we to do it? Lo, I am with you always. Emmanuel, I am with you always. God with us, even to the end of the age. It ends the same way it starts. God's with us, and He wants all nations to come to Him. Now, we as believers, we have a responsibility. A responsibility. We have a privilege to take part in that. As a non-believer, you have a responsibility and the privilege of coming to God in faith. You say, but pastor, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but I cannot go on a mission trip. I can't do it. My job won't let me. My finances won't let me. I just can't do it. Well, maybe, maybe prayerfully consider it. Sometimes we say, well, I can't do it. We never thought of it. You know, it's kind of like I have kids at school. They say, I don't like that. Oh, yeah, 
supposed to taste like? I don't know. I've never tried it. You say, well, I can't go on a mission trip. How do you know? Have you prayed about it? No. But I just know I can't. Pray about it. Think about it. We have associational mission trips. There are some in the area, some that go overseas. Maybe you can get maybe you can get connected in some way that way. Maybe you really can't. Maybe job or family or health or whatever is keeping you from going. Give a little bit. Give a lot of it. Because if we can't go, we can send. We can send. And, and the way that we do that, of course, we take up the offering all throughout the year. A lot of Christmas offering specifically for that. Prayerfully consider it.